we've been following through, and we're kind of like laboring to get to the end of, of Acts. And Acts, essentially, if you're kind of looking at the like 30,000 foot view of what's going on in Acts, it's the gospel going from Jerusalem to Rome, essentially. That's what's happening. But it's giving you kind of all the details of how the church began and then how it's kind of spread into the sort of Mediterranean area and then how it eventually made its way all the way to Rome and made its way into the most powerful kind of, uh, you know, the most powerful, the center of power uh, in, in the known world at the time. And the, we're getting kind of to the point now where we're uh, following Paul and he's in captivity and he's basically been, there are people in Jerusalem who are trying to kill him and they are basically doing everything they can to make sure this guy dies. They want to make sure that something happens to where they get a hold of him and they kill him. And he's been whisked away to Caesarea and he's been held under house arrest for two years and kind of, he's basically spent time with this guy Felix who's in charge of Caesarea and they keep talking about the gospel and they, he keeps sharing more stuff. He's basically leading a Bible study for, for uh, Felix and Felix is not biting. He's not get, you know, uh, receiving the gospel. He just continues to talk to Paul and talk to Paul and you can see kind of frustration here today <clears throat> as Felix kind of comes out of power and Festus comes into power. Um, so I know it's kind of confusing. Felix and Festus, they're not the same person. Uh, Festus comes into power and Festus is doing some housekeeping and he basically finds out he has had this guy here for two years having Bible study with Felix and he's trying to, you know, Felix was trying to get a bribe out of him to let him go and Festus is like, I got to deal with this guy. So we're picking up the story today where Festus is trying to figure out what the story is with Paul and trying to figure out what charges actually to give him if he's going to send him on to Rome. So if he's going to get a trial by, from Caesar somewhere else, somewhere in Rome, he has to send him with charges. And he doesn't know what to charge him with because he can't quite figure out what's actually the problem here. Uh, the Jews are trying to explain it to him, but it's really convoluted and connected to their uh, religious practices, and he can't quite figure it out. And so today we're going to see this, this situation where Paul, after two years, is finally has a chance to come uh, and prepare and, and have his case brought before Festus and to explain what's going on. And Festus invites a guy named Agrippa, who's also in power. He's sort of regionally in power. And he comes and spends time with Festus at this place, and they're trying to figure out what's going on with Paul. And that's kind of where we pick up the story here. Okay, So I'm going to pick it up in chapter 25, verse 23. Uh, the next day, Agrippa and Bernice. Bernice is uh, Agrippa's, uh, we'll call her his traveling companion. Um, it's uh, his sister, and they're together. And uh, she's been married twice and left both marriages to come back to her brother, who is also her lover. Um, so it's her brother lover. Um, it's weird. If, if you want to know about Agrippa's, which we'll talk about more in a minute, Basically, whatever the worst possible thing they can do is, is what they're doing. So, basically, this brother and sister are together, and they are traveling, and this is who's in front of Paul today. So, the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and ex entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man, the whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing uh, definite to write to his majesty about him. 
Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on Rome without specifying the charges against him. Okay, so it kind of makes sense. That's reasonable that he's not willing to send him to uh, Rome without knowing exactly what it is. So he's helping, hoping Agrippa can uh, help sort of suss out what the problem is here, and then he can send Paul with the written charges to the place that he needs to go, which is on his way to Rome. Okay, so that's the situation that we find ourselves in. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, uh, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. By the way, Paul's a Jew. This is kind of like when your kid does something bad and you call them your son to your spouse. Or your daughter to your spouse? I'm not, I wasn't picking on my son. Okay. Um, but this is like, you know, he, I love how he says the accusations of the Jews. He's a Jew. Like, he's like the accusations of those Jews. Or of the overly religious Jews. Or of the Jews who are trying to kill me. Or the Jews who are lying about me. Right? Like, you might as well say it that way. But he says, I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially, so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me. Patiently, So he's speaking directly to King Agrippa, and he says, hey, you understand the customs of the Jews. You get this. Now, the, Agrippa is Herod Agrippa II, okay? I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but there are four Herods, okay, that we see in Scripture. We've got Herod the Great. He's the one that tried to kill Jesus when he was born, okay? We've got Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas uh, beheaded John the Baptist, uh, washed his hands of Jesus, uh, you know, they've had interactions with Jesus throughout this entire story. And Her- he, uh, this is King Agrippa II, uh, Herod Agrippa II, so he's the fourth generation. And basically his family has been in charge of this land and had interactions with Jesus all along the way of his story and understand the church. And not only is Paul saying, hey, it's a good thing that you're here because you know the history of this area you understand what was going on with Jesus probably more than most rulers in this area. And you probably know all this whole story before I even tell it to you. In fact, if you want, we could go and see an empty tomb. We could go and talk to witnesses who could, who could testify to the fact that, you know, I'm here saying that the resurrection happened. And we could prove this if you want to. Like, you know that we could prove this. We could drag in uh, witnesses that have seen Jesus since he died. We could look at an empty tomb. We could talk to people. There's a, there's a way for us to get to the bottom of this. King Agrippa, and you know all about it because your great-great-grandfather, your grandfather, your father, they all had interactions with Jesus, with the church, with the gospel, and they understand from beginning to end what's going on here. Not only that, you understand the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. His great-great-grandfather was looking for Jesus because he was told about the Old Testament scriptures, right? Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, like there, there were things in the Old Testament, the Psalms, that talked about Jesus coming, and he's like, you know all that stuff. He's going he's gonna to refer to it in a minute, but he's like, you are the perfect person for me to make this uh, claim before because you have more information than either Felix had or Festus or any other person I could get in this position. It doesn't mean he's good. He's not good, right? The Herods are terrible. If you look at their history and what they did in order to rule, it was never good. There was nothing good about them. They were always pretty much doing the worst thing possible, okay? So 
But he had all the background, and so Paul did not have to give him all that background. Um, mm, Verse 4. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known for a long time and can testify if they are willing, and I can to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee, and now it's because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? And Paul says, hey, it's the hope that we have in the Old Testament scriptures that points to Jesus, and I'm pointing to the fulfillment of what we've all been looking for. At this time, people were waiting for this Messiah to come, and Paul is saying, I have the answer to what everyone's been waiting for. We have waited with hope, and it's very, it's very clear that when Jesus came, there weren't a lot of people still waiting with hope. Like, the Jews were like, hey, there will be a Messiah, but we think this Messiah will be a political figure who will step onto the stage and put us in, in power. Like that's the way they were looking at it. But there were people waiting. When Jesus gets presented in the, in the temple, there are prophets there who are excited to see Jesus and recognize him as the Messiah in that moment. They've been waiting with hope. They've been praying daily, waiting for this Messiah to come. And when they finally see Jesus and hold him and pray over him, they realize that they've seen the fulfillment of this hope that they have. Right? There are people waiting with hope in this. And I, I think we misunderstand or maybe don't make it as important as it should be that the gospel begins with the hope of resurrection. Like We know we continue on if we know Jesus. And so we hope in a future that's been promised to us, that's been given to us, that's been offered to us by God, and we have hope in that. And it drives us as Christians to live a different kind of life, one that's filled with hope and driven by hope and fueled by hope. So Paul is saying, hey, I know we've all been waiting for this, and I have it. I'm ready to share it with you. Are you looking for hope? Because here it is. Guys, I think the world around us, I I don't know about you, but I feel like it gets less and less hopeful every single day, man. Even the the events of the last couple weeks, I have, like, been struggling hard with that, right? It is just horrible. People being killed all over the place, you know, and it's... Uh, an absolute mess and you hear people screaming at each other on one side or the other vilifying everyone and there are innocent people who are dying i i start to lose hope in situations like that but as christians we're supposed to put hope on display the understanding and the idea this world is super broken and it's messed up all around us we see all kinds of things that that cause us to lose hope and yet as christians we believe in a future that's going to be offered to us through our relationship with Jesus, and we live with hope. We live with it. This is what the world needs to see on display in the lives of people. Not that we want to fight over political issues, not that we want to you know, get, mix it up with people and make a point and try to you know, win every argument, not that we want to make everything that's happening around the world just out to be this thing that's going to crush all of our souls. Like, No, we live with hope, and yes, we live in a broken world, and we recognize that, and we do everything we can in that world, to bring about the light that Christ has brought about in our own lives. But if we aren't living with hope, we're missing out on the idea that Jesus has promised us some, a better future than any of us you know, could have on our own 
And we should be living with that hope as a fuel to be, you know, doing the things that God has called us to do. And so the gospel begins with hope, and Paul starts his conversation here with Agrippa with hope. But Paul, you know Paul. He's not going to stop there. Obviously, he uses his testimony. He always uses his testimony. It's, you're probably at this point, you're like, I have his testimony memorized, okay? I got it. We got it. But it's kind of important, okay? Because your testimony starts and ends with how Jesus changed your life. And so Paul's going to recount it again for Agrippa. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of chief priests. I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus, and with the authority and commission of the chief priests, About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? So Paul tells his story, the same story that we've heard now three times in Acts. He tells the story in other places too, in Philippians. One of the other uh, uh, letters that he writes to the churches, he tells a story about five times in the New Testament. Okay? We know his story, but he stops here with this question, who are you, Lord? And I want to I ask you, like, what is your answer to that question? Because Paul is confused. He thinks he's serving God. He thinks he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. And then he finds that his life is changed by meeting this person, and he needs to know who this person is. He said, I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up. And stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. Your testimony is all about the moment that you meet Jesus and have everything turned around. That Jesus is the turning point in any person's testimony. And you might say, well, I accepted Jesus when I was four. That's fantastic. I'm so glad you accepted Jesus when you were four. I love that. Okay? It just means that you missed out on the heartache of living a life without Jesus for most of your life. That's fantastic. I hope that's, the, that's what I hope for all of our children at this church. But when you meet Jesus, things in your life turn. My guess is, probably even if you uh, met Jesus at four, there's a moment in your life where you had to then make the decision to really follow Jesus as a teenager or an adult. And you've got to get good at sharing those micro-stories. The, like, the decision, the crisis point where you had to decide I'm either going to be for Jesus or not. I'm either going to decide to follow Jesus or not. This is going to go beyond this being a family thing or go beyond this being something I'm just doing for the sake of doing it and turn into something that I'm going to actually live out myself in my life. That, those are the testimonies that I think matter to people. And we've talked about how when you share your testimony, no one's going to argue with you. No one's going to be like, no, that's not how it happened, or no, that's not what, you know, or no. No, they're going to listen to what you have to say, and you're going to tell them that your life is different and changed. And I hope that your life is different and changed because of your relationship with Jesus. Like, that's what we need. We need to tell a testimony that's actually true. We need to explain to people exactly what's going on in our lives. 
Because meeting Jesus is the turning point in every testimony, and it's the turning point here for, for Paul. And so he shares the story and tells about how Jesus changed everything for him. I was murdering Christians. I was chasing them down. I thought I was in the right. I was following God better than anybody, as hard and as zealous as I possibly could. And then Jesus knocked me down and blinded me and told me to stop persecuting him. That's what it took to get me to stop. So he says, everything turned around when I met Jesus. He says, now get up, stand to your feet. I have appeared to you to point you as a servant and as a witness. And I want to tell you that when Jesus saves you, he doesn't just save you so that you can get fire insurance on the wall. He doesn't just save you so that you, know, you can attend church once a week. He saves you so that you can be a servant and you can be a witness. He gives you purpose. He gives you a job. He gets you involved in his kingdom, in his ministry. Like we, we, I mean, look around. Almost every single, we were having a conversation last week in, in staff meeting or two weeks ago. And we were like, all right, let's, let's just think about, we, we needed some more volunteers for something. We we're like, let's just think about who's not volunteering. It's not, it's not a lot, it's not a lot of people. Almost everybody in this church has their hands in and does something. I had to go through carefully and pull a couple names that I could call and be like, hey, could you do something for us? We need some help with this. Because everybody else is doing... I, I, some people I'd be like, hey, could I could you get your help with something? And they already have four jobs around here. Like, I, a lot of you who are part of this church understand that you have a chance to be a servant and a witness. Okay, The servant part is pretty easy. You're serving your church on a weekly basis. The witness part is a little bit tougher. The witness part puts us in a weird spot sometimes where we don't necessarily always want to go full bore. However, Paul is playing with house money because Jesus has already told him he's going to Rome. Jesus has already said, say what you want, be as bold as you need to be, I'm taking you to Rome. Okay, and so Paul is going to continue on and be a witness in this moment. So he says, Jesus saved him so that he could be a servant and a witness. He said, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. I mean, that terminology that Paul uses there, I wonder if we really, really believe that. Like, do we really believe that when we help someone come into a relationship with Jesus, that we're saving them, in Paul's words, from the power of Satan to God, from darkness to light, from being blind to having their eyes open, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. Like, do we really, really, really believe that? Because if we did, I think those stakes are so high that it would cause us to witness in a completely different way. Like, we don't have accidental encounters with people on a daily basis. We have a chance to free them from Satan and help them find God. We have a chance to help them receive forgiveness of sins and have a place among the people. We have a chance to bring them from darkness into light. Do we really believe? Do we really believe that? Because that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, hey, this is what God saved me for. He saved me to be a servant and a witness, and he, I know what the stakes are, man. I know that the stakes are so much higher than anyone believes. That there is a two different outcomes to this, uh, this situation. One is 
Someone's going to continue to be under the power of Satan, or they're going to find God. One is that they might receive forgiveness of sins, or that they might have a place among those who are sanctified. One is that they may stay blind, or they may have their eyes open. One is that they may live in darkness or live in light. And I want to be the person that's on the side of bringing people into light. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by, by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Like, he calls him crazy. Right? I don't know what your, your answer was for your question. Uh, my answer is pretty easy. Uh, I call Rosie crazy all the time. She, her nickname for me is Crazy Rosie. Uh, you may not know why. She's extra. Have you met Rosie? Right? She looked right at me when you asked the question, by the way. Uh, she does everything at 200%. She's nuts. Paul's nuts. Paul is like, hey, I got, a, I got a, uh, an audience. I'm going hard after the gospel, and I'm preaching the whole thing. Like, I don't care if my life is in danger. I've been waiting two years for this. Can you imagine? He's waiting two years for this. He's probably practiced this speech in the mirror over and over and over. I don't know if they had mirrors. Did they have mirrors? Over and over and over. Ready for it. Saying, God, give me, just give me a chance, God. Just give me an opportunity. Put me in front of whoever. I don't care who it is. Put me in front of whoever and let me preach the gospel. And here it is. And he goes for it and he's bold. Look, the gospel, in order to share the gospel, in order to, to you know, have that, that gear where you're able to share the gospel, it takes boldness. Paul's like, hey, in front of all these people, in front of these important people, I'm going to go for it and I'm going to share this gospel the best I absolutely can. And Festus calls it and says, dude, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. And I'd be like, no, what drove me insane is being locked up for two years and forgotten about. I am definitely not insane. He says, I'm not insane, most excellent, most excellent Festus. That's like a tongue twister. Say that a couple times. Paul replied, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. He turns and puts Agrippa on trial. Who's about to be on trial right now? Agrippa. He's like, hey, maybe you don't understand Festus, but the king knows all about this. His great-great-grandfather tried to kill Jesus before he ever had a chance to do anything. His grandfather washed his hands of it, beheaded John the Baptist. Like He's very familiar with all this stuff. He knows the Jewish scriptures. He says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with all these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short time that you can persuade me to be a Christian? He's bold. He's going for it. He challenges the king, the guy with the most power. He says, hey, I know you know what I'm talking about. I know this is part of your family's history. I know you've been following this whole story. I know it. And I know you believe those Jewish scriptures because you've been part of them. You've been part of seeing those things come to fruition now in the New Testament. 
He's like, I know that there's like a familial connection here. And so I'm challenging you to accept the gospel. And of course, Agrippa says, are you joking? There's no way I'm going to accept the gospel. And he's like, look, there's a million reasons why Agrippa could have been struggling with accepting the gospel. Festus is sitting right next to him. He's a powerful guy. Probably wants his respect. Probably doesn't want to look like a fool. He thinks, obviously, Festus thinks this is foolish. Right? He knows he's living in sin. He's living with his sister. He knows that if he became a Christian, he would have to change the way, especially the sexual ethic of the early church was like insanely careful and thoughtful and very, uh, it would have been something he would absolutely would have had to deal with of his own. He would have known he would have had to walk back his sin in that area. Right? He's standing in front of potentially a whole room full of people who are watching this, doesn't want to look like a fool, wants to have their approval, wants to continue to have people's respect. And so he's not willing to receive the gospel in this moment because he's much more worried about all the other things that are going on around him. Right? But later on, you can see that he's actually like thoughtful and thinks about Paul and would have actually let Paul go if Paul hadn't actually challenged to go to Caesar. And so you wonder, like, with Paul's boldness, how close was Agrippa to just accepting Christ and changing his whole life? And yet he doesn't. And so it requires uh, boldness. Uh, the last little bit here. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. And I want to sort of just stop and talk about this for a second here. There is a weird thing that is happening sort of in our culture where we have this philosophy and you can actually follow the desire to share your faith, the desire to convert people to Christianity. The desire to do that has actually decreased in every generation from older to younger over the past 20, 30, 40 years since we've been measuring this. That in fact, older people are more likely to share their faith and want to convert someone to Christianity Younger people are less likely to share their faith and want to convert someone to Christianity. The word convert is kind of a problem for a lot of younger people. It, it, there's, a, there's sort of like that now a cultural way of looking at things where it's like if you decide that you want to help someone convert to something, that you're disrespecting what they are and who they are and not respecting sort of their identity when it comes to whatever religion they may be a part of. Now, I want you to know we, we have to reject that. Like, if we know the stakes and we believe them, then we know that Jesus' words were, like, so clear on what it takes to follow God and to be a Christian that no one comes to the Father except through Christ. Those are His own words. And the world tells us we should not be trying to convert people because it's disrespectful to their identity. And I understand where that's coming from. It's not a bad place that that's coming from. To want to respect people and care about them and to give them dignity no matter what they've chosen in this world, like, like I understand the desire to do that. But we have to override that desire with the idea that we know the choice is either to live in a world where Satan rules the world and they are under the spell of of an enemy, or to see them flourish, have their lives changed, have meaning brought into their lives, 
and to have eternity with God. Like, we have to understand that those are the two options, and we should be fighting for the second one, even if it, if it violates our desire to be respectful of their identity. And that is waned with each generation. That sharing our faith, being evangelists, if that's the word you want to use, has gotten worse and worse, less interesting to each successive generation where we've said, hey, we're, we, we just want to respect people. We'll be glad to share our faith if someone asks us about it, but we're not going to bring the conversation to them. We're not going to challenge them with a decision, and we're not going to do anything that would offend them. And in, in reality, what we're doing, if we believe the gospel in that, in that situation, is we're condemning them to continue to follow Satan and to not know God to not have the promise that God has for us, to not understand the hope of what it means, to not have the, the, the meaning in our lives now that God's given us a purpose, like to not have eternal life available to, to them. We have to get over that, that desire to not offend people in order to share with them who Jesus is. It's not easy. And it puts us in a weird spot. I don't think this is the best way Paul could have went about defending himself. And yet, Paul, he has one gear. Like, I understand that maybe your gifting isn't evangelism, and you can use that as an excuse sometimes when you fumble over your words or don't say something just right. And trust me, God uses those moments just the same. But the desire to help people find Jesus has to go beyond just the gifting of evangelism. It has to be part of every single Christian's life. So the question is, who? Do you need to stand in front of and be bold and passionate about your faith with? Who? There's an answer to that question. God has placed you in specific places where you have access to people that no one else has access to. It can be as easy as come join me in what we're doing. But it's not always just come with me to this or come with me to that or hey, I'm, would you like to go to church with me? Like, Yeah, that can be a good way to do it. But sometimes you have to share your testimony. And you have to ask the question. And I, I want to just say, too, like strategy-wise, like I, I do love anybody who's in a uh, transitional period in their life. Just think about that, maybe, as a way to think about who is ready and open for the gospel. Who's getting married? Who's having a baby? Who's dealing with loss of someone in their life? Who's changing careers? Who's moving? Like, there's times when we get into transitions where things we get become open again to things, Maybe think about some of the people who in your life who are open right now because there's been some transition in their life and you can have a conversation with them about where they stand with God. Maybe that's a way to, to think about it. It's something I often pay attention to because I find people are most open to things when they're going through transitions in their life. And it could be things that are small or things that are big. But we have to come at it with passion and we have to come at it knowing that if we don't reach out to people that there is a lot at stake, a lot on the line, more than we want to believe sometimes. And that needs to drive us to share the gospel with people. Let me finish out this chapter. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them. And after they left the room, they began to say to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And we're going to... Uh, we're going to get the gospel to Rome here 
in uh, next week as we finish up Acts, uh, as we finish up the, the two more chapters that are left. And uh, I just want to challenge you this week as you think about people in your life who need to hear the gospel, who need some boldness from you and some passion. Who is it that you have access to, that you have a relationship with, that you're friends with, that you're connected to, and you just know that they're just, they're not there. And a challenge from you or an invite or some passion about sharing your story with them would change, change their future, change their lives. Let me just, let me just pray as we close. Jesus, uh, again, would you use us in spite of ourselves? God, would you overcome our weaknesses, overcome our fear? And would you give us boldness and passion to share the gospel with people? God, I pray that we would act as though it, your gospel is true, that there are eternal stakes. And for the people that we love, God, that we would make it very clear how to know who you are. That we would share our stories with people, that we would invite them with the hope of resurrection in our lives, and we would invite them into a relationship with you. And God, would you show us success in reaching the people that you have called us to reach? Would you uh, help us to make the, the gesture, and would it be returned in a way where the people respond to the gospel? In Jesus' name, amen.